The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 2nd, 2023. With the two-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol approaching, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack wrapped up its work last month after several hearings. To put into context the hearings of the January 6th Committee, I chose an episode from June 2020. In the episode, Margaret Taylor sat down with Josh Chaffetz to discuss congressional overspeech how it serves as an important tool of constitutional politics, and why it's important even if it doesn't immediately produce good outcomes. I'm Margaret Taylor, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 9th, 2020. High-profile congressional hearings, like the 2015 Benghazi hearings, the 2019 Mueller report hearings, and most recently, the Ukraine impeachment proceedings are often described in derogatory terms like political theater, spectacle, circus. But do these exaggerated performances on Capitol Hill actually serve a constitutional purpose? I sat down with Josh Chaffetz, a law professor and author of the book, Congress's Constitution, Legislative Authority and the Separation of Powers. We talked about his most recent article in which he argues that congressional overspeech, like congressional oversight, is actually an important tool of constitutional politics, even if it doesn't automatically produce good outcomes. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 9th, Congressional Overspeech, with Josh Chaffetz. So, Josh, I want to start with a moment that I remember from about a year ago, a little less than a year ago. Uh, It was when Robert Mueller's testimony concluded in July, and all of the news coverage was about how the testimony and the hearings were sort of a failed performance. All of the news coverage was focused on that. Not much of the news coverage focused on the facts that were Uh, being talked about in the context of the hearings, the facts from the report that Robert Mueller was being asked to, you know, speak to. It was really all about this sort of performance aspect of the the hearings. That moment really crystallized for me, in essence, a huge part of what congressional oversight has become. Did you have a similar moment like that at that time or in response to some other set of congressional hearings that, that got you interested in writing this article? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've been thinking about about this particular issue for uh, a little bit longer than that, but I think that really was a great crystallizing moment um, where the, the discourse really became about the performance. 
Um, and a lot of the discourse about the performance took place in a very sort of uh, tut-tutting tone. You know, how dare people focus on the performativity of it uh, and not on the facts or something like that. And that, I think, is part of what spurred me to actually uh, write this piece, because facts don't exist uh, in the absence of sort of their being uh, talked about, right? There's no such thing as just a sort of fact about the world that motivates people to behavior. That fact has to be sort of uh, framed and packaged and described and performed. And so I wanted to sort of take that discourse and and suggest that, yes, that is the, that is the case with the Mueller testimony, but that's always the case, whether we recognize that it's uh, happening or not. And therefore, um, the people engaged in this, whether we're talking about Mueller himself or whether we're talking about the members of Congress and their and their staffs who are who are producing these hearings, need to be cognizant of that. They 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 can't just assume that the facts by on their own will have motivating force. So I want to take you back much further back in time to the time of the founding fathers and the 18th century into the 19th century. In your very good article that you wrote, you sort of talk about that time period and what congressional oversight sort of consisted of, that it was more sort of a, a grand inquisition kind of a model. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about that. How did, how was congressional oversight and sort of the performative aspects of Congress's work conceived of during that time frame? Sure. Well, we can even go back a little bit further. So the language of the grand inquest of the nation uh, actually comes out of the 1730s and debates about the role of the House of Commons um, in Britain. Uh, and there was this idea that as as you had the sort of development of British democracy, the development of the idea that the ministers of the crown were actually answerable to parliament, uh, that it was the House of Commons that served as a sort of overseer as the grand inquest, and not just in the sense of potential wrongdoing, uh, but even just in terms of if things went wrong, if bad things happened, it was the job of the House of Commons to try to figure out why and whether someone should shoulder the blame for it. So then this idea sort of gets picked up uh, first in the colonial American assemblies, which had a very adversarial relationship in many contexts with the royal governors. And then it gets uh, sort of continued through into the new American Republic. Um, and we see this starting very early. So in, in 1792, the first major uh, congressional hearings are these hearings into the uh, failure of the St. Clair expedition, a, um, a battle uh, between uh, army forces led by uh, General St. Clair and uh, Native American tribes. Um, and the Native American tribes won. And then there's this great inquest in, in Congress as to sort of who's to blame. Um, and in particular, whether blame should be put on Secretary of War Henry Knox, or uh, whether St. Clair himself is responsible. Um, they wind up calling for documents both from the War Department and from the Treasury Department. Alexander Hamilton delivers the documents in person uh, that are coming from the Treasury Department. It's sort of widely uh, discussed at the time. It's understood as sort of a big moment and, and an important investigation uh, and a sort of important moment in, in early conflict between the branches and also between the parties. Um, you know, partisanship is important from the beginning. So you don't really have parties yet in 1792, but you do have a sort of identifiably sort of nascent Federalist faction and an identifiably nascent Jeffersonian faction. And they're predictably on, on opposite sides of this. Um, so right from the beginning, there's this idea of sort of public clash, of it having consequences and of it interacting with other kinds of cleavages, with, with sort of uh, partisanship and, and things like that. And in your, based on your research, I mean, is it your impression that 
the Congress had at that time this idea that they were speaking to the public directly, or was it more sort of an interaction with with the presidency and sort of the the merits of it were were in the the asking and receiving of of the facts and the information? Like, did it have this sort of rhetorical or performative quality to it at that time? Absolutely. There's a recognition, especially in the House of Representatives from the very beginning, um, that part of what it's doing is interacting with the public. In fact, um, you know, until 1795, the Senate met behind closed doors uh, and the House met publicly. And a big part of what forces the Senate to begin opening up its proceedings is that the, the public in Philadelphia, well, first New York and then Philadelphia, is viewing sort of going to the House of Representatives as a uh, as a sort of fun day out, as a as an aspect of entertainment, as one of the things you would do on the social circuit of the national capital. And that's actually giving the House more power vis-a-vis the Senate. Um, and ultimately that convinces the Senate that, hey, we've got to, we've got to open our proceedings as well. So there's a sense right from the beginning that that interacting with the public and making sure the public sort of uh, not only understands what you're doing, but that you're presenting it to them in the best possible light uh, is really important. Your article reminded me of actually a, a podcast that Ben Wittes had done on the Lawfare podcast over several years ago, actually, at this point, a year and a half ago, about a book called The Rhetorical Presidency, uh, which was written by a political science named Jeffrey Tullis. And he, in that book, sort of, and in the podcast, which I commend to all our listeners, he talks about how the speaking style of presidents changed from the founding era through the 19th century and into the 20th century. Then they he sort of connects it to, or in the podcast, they connect it to this hyper rhetorical style of Donald Trump. And my question for you, and then later, Woodrow Wilson sort of reinterpreted the presidency and began speaking more directly to the American people instead of sort of primarily speaking to the legislature itself. I mean, do you think that the the sort of success of the House of Representatives and sort of presenting its face to the public was was part of that? that transition in terms of having an impact on the presidency itself and how the presidency presents itself? Well, I think, um, so first of all, I, I should say, I think Jeff Tulis's book is fantastic and, and I, I uh, highly recommend that, that people uh, take a look at it. And I think it's, you know, it's been very uh, formative for my own work. I think that, you know, I, if, if I had one criticism of that book, I think it's maybe a little bit too linear in its presentation. I think that it might be sort of uh, the way I would characterize it is that different presidents have had different styles of interacting with the public, and that it hasn't necessarily been a sort of straight line, or there the, there haven't been these sort of one way inflection points. You know, we can talk about presidents who have a sort of especially good. Uh, or an especially effective public presentation. So someone like uh, Andrew Jackson would be on that list, uh, sort of much earlier than, than say, Woodrow Wilson, and, and someone who's sort of known for taking uh, a case directly to the public. And then there have been uh, presidents who've tried to take their case directly to the public and have caused significant backlash in doing so. So um, Andrew Johnson uh, would be uh, an example of that uh, in the 19th century. So I think there's, you know, the, the, there have been different speaking styles by presidents. And, and likewise, there have been different speaking styles by uh, members of Congress, by houses of Congress, uh, and different levels of effectiveness and kinds of effectiveness over time. And because a lot of what they're doing is seeking to uh, sort of 
uh, assert their own positions vis-a-vis one another, right? Uh, uh, president on the one hand, House on another, Senate on another, courts, I would say, by the way, do this as well. Uh, because they're sort of constantly interacting with each other and trying to assert their power vis-a-vis one another, there are all these interaction effects, right? So uh, a, a particularly effective uh, president at communicating with the public will have certain effects on how uh, Congress, you know, whether they try to sort of step up to meet that or whether they wind up being sort of cowed by that. And likewise, sort of presidents who have weaker public standing uh, will often find themselves met with a Congress that that tries to step into the breach. Um, so we see that, you know, in the 19th century in the John Tyler administration uh, and and um, in the 20th century, we see that uh, with some of the, the post-Watergate presidents, for example. And so taking that that sort of historical journey there. In your article, you talk about, you have two case studies in particular. One is the munitions inquiry from the nineteen, the mid-1930s, and then um, the more well-known, I'd say McCarthy, and then the Army McCarthy hearings uh, in the 1950s. Walk us through those case studies. Why did you choose those two to, to sort of showcase your, your thesis about sort of congressional speech? Sure. So the, um, I think there's a, a, a series of reasons I wanted to choose those. You know, one is that it is true that although there, you know, there have been these hearings um, and this, this, uh, this sort of importance attributed to congressional oversight from the earliest days of the republic, it becomes more prominent with the rise of the administrative state, which makes a certain amount of sense, right? As the uh, executive branch and, and independent agencies sort of grow in power, so too uh, Congress perceives a sort of need to to engage in more oversight. So to my mind, it made sense to sort of uh, focus on 20th century uh, examples. Um, and I wanted to, to use examples with very different media of communication. So, um, you know, these two case studies are at the end of the article. Up until that point, I use a lot of more contemporary examples. So I talk about Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez. I talk about, um, uh, you know, things that have happened under the Trump administration. I talk a little bit about Iran-Contra, things like that. But I wanted to sort of use things that had happened in earlier moments and with different media of communication. So the munitions inquiry is largely about print media and with a sort of secondary role for radio. And then McCarthy and Army McCarthy is largely a story about television. So I wanted to suggest that, you know, although the media of communication matter here and they affect what counts as sort of good, effective uses of these tools that I characterize as congressional overspeech, that nevertheless, the, the sort of phenomenon continues across different uh, different media environments. And then I also wanted to sort of emphasize that, you know, just because this is a powerful and important tool doesn't mean it's always used for good, right? So it's, an, it's important in uh, McCarthy's fall, which I regard as a good thing, uh, but it's also important in McCarthy's rise, right? McCarthy is uh, very effective at uh, using oversight as a me- as a mechanism of public communication. Right? So the mere fact that it's an important tool for members of Congress to do their job doesn't mean they're always doing normatively good things with it. And I wanted to to sort of I wanted that to be prominent in the piece as well. And so yes, your premise is that this congressional overspeech quote overspeech, which I think I think is a word that you. Have, have coined at this is, point. Yeah. And you say it's an institutionally valuable one, providing Congress with important tools to compete with the other branches for public support and therefore for power. Um, but tell, tell me about that word overspeech. How did you land on that term? Um, because to me, it, it carries a bit of a pejorative, just the, over the word, the, attaching the word over to it. It's almost like too much speech or the wrong kind of speech or something, but I don't think that's how you mean it. Um, so, so tell us about that that term, congressional overspeech. 
Right. So I, I, I was thinking of it in sort of two ways. One is just as a play on the idea of congressional oversight, um, because the idea is that it's the use of tools that are sort of mechanisms that are traditionally associated with oversight, but it's their use uh, uh, for communicative purposes. Uh, and then the second was uh, that it you know, might, in, in circumstances, allow uh, members of Congress, committees of Congress, or, or houses of Congress to actually speak over the president in a certain way, to, to actually get their message out there uh, in a way that can be uh, just as effective as mechanisms of presidential communication. You know, we're, we're used to thinking that the president really does have the bully pulpit. And much of the time that's true, but it is also the case that that Congress has ways of focusing attention. It has tools it can use. It has moments it can take advantage of. And when it does that, it can attract public attention on a scale similar to that of the president. Um, and so I wanted to emphasize that this actually does allow uh, Congress in certain circumstances or parts of Congress in certain circumstances to speak over the president. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. And just related to that, in your article, you talk about sort of the the sort of the resting norm of how we think of congressional oversight in the sense that you often hear this, I hear it from family and friends uh, that, oh, you know, that, that hearing, that Mueller hearing or whatever, Benghazi hearing, it was so political. It was so politicized. It was so over the top. And so it's almost like the, the, the premise is like the virtuous, hearing or the virtuous congressional oversight would just be purely fact-based and Congress would just collect facts and make sense of them and try to make government better. Uh, but but you're saying that's, that's sort of like a, a false premise. Well, there are certainly hearings that look more like, I, so I refer to that, that idea as, as the sort of consensus ideal. And, and, you know, I'd spend some time in the piece uh, noting that, you know, people across the ideological and partisan spectrum sort of talk as if that is what characterizes good oversight, right? It's just about uh, receiving the facts. It's about um, fact finding, right? It's, it's nonpartisan, it's civil. Uh, and there is plenty of congressional oversight activity that actually does look more or less like that. The thing is, people don't you know, mo- most sort of people who don't follow Congress closely don't know about that activity in part because it doesn't attract public attention, right? That it's, um, uh, so what they see, you know, what, what does actually make the news is, uh, are, is the oversight activity that looks more like overspeech. And that in itself should sort of perhaps give, uh, give people some pause, right? If, if uh, the stuff that they think of as virtuous gets no attention whatsoever and they're, you know, they're not paying attention to it, um, that might suggest that it's that the, their idea of what constitutes uh, virtue uh, has a lot in common with inefficacy. 
whereas the uh, things that you know look you know and, and I, I I have trouble with this word political right what would you expect political institutions to engage in if not politics but the things that sort of look political in the way people uh, are, are using it in that sense are the things that are meant to sort of directly engage with the public and we want Congress to engage with the public we want Congress to both reflect public opinion help to shape public opinion if it's ever going to be able to sort of stand up to the uh, to the other branches, it's got to do so by enlisting the public on its side, and it's got to therefore engage in effective communication with the public. Um, and so, my argument in this in this article is that a lot of you know that the, the tools of congressional oversight give it ways of effectively engaging with and convincing the public, um, and that when it can successfully use those tools. Um, it has sort of empowered itself in really important ways. So I think when I think of the when when people use the the word political as a criticism, I I think what they are intuiting is more sort of what seems to them to be not a good faith sort of cooperative effort at governance. And your article kind of got me thinking about uh, and and you talk about this in in the article, you know how how people react to congressional overspeech. And I think at one point you say there is a tendency that it it sort of reifies or just enhances existing political leanings. And so I was thinking as a concrete example, you know, when you when you ask some people, you know, what they thought of the Benghazi hearing, some people will say, well, you know, those are really good. It was necessary to do. And other people are like, oh, it's it was totally politicized and not a good faith inquiry by the same token and I've talked to people um, about this you know you ask them about well, what'd you think of the the Ukraine impeachment inquiry and it's like oh it was totally politicized <laughs> um, and other people say oh you know that was a good thing I'm glad they did that so you know what what are the sort of different reactions from based on political party you know what what does that say about you know what why is this congressional overspeech valuable if if what it tends to do um, in a lot of instances is just kind of solidify your existing, you know, ideological or partisan views. Right. So I think I think there's sort of two two things I would say in response to that. One is that congressional hearings don't just uh, solidify existing views. So we we know this. So um, Doug Kreiner and Eric Schickler uh, have a fantastic book called Investigating the President, where they look um, at basically all. Uh, hearings, uh, all congressional hearings aimed at uh, presidential oversight between 1953 and 2014. So well into the current era of partisan polarization. And they found that when you increase the number of uh, days of hearings investigating the president, it decreases presidential approval ratings. Um, And that finding is robust over time. It's robust over uh, unified versus divided government. Um, So people do actually change their views based on on congressional oversight. So that's sort of one thing that's that's worth emphasizing. But another thing, you know, you, I, I do say, right, one thing that, that overspeech can be uh, is divisive, right? So on the consensus view, right, oversight ought to aim at building consensus. Um, and I say, well, that's, you know, sometimes maybe something it should aim at doing. Um, but other times, perhaps what it should or what it aims at and, and what it can effectively do is uh, preach to the choir. You know, choirs need to be preached to sometimes. And one thing that effective political leaders do is not just try to win over uh, people who don't already support them, although they do do that, uh, but also try to rally their own supporters. And that's an important part of politics. Um, and sometimes that's an important thing that 
that that overspeech can do is is uh, sort of get all of your followers on the same page. It can reinforce their views. It can help them. Uh, sort of understand what the party line is. Um, and we actually saw this with the, the Mueller hearings, for example. So um, one of the takeaways after the Mueller hearings that you heard a lot was it didn't convince anyone because you look at polling from right before the Mueller hearings and right after the Mueller hearings and things like support for impeaching the president remain almost exactly at the same levels. But if you look more closely at those polls, it turns out that what it did, what the hearings did was they convinced Democrats to be more supportive of impeachment and Republicans to be less supportive of impeachment. So it, the, the Mueller hearings actually further polarized the public. Now, if you're the Democrats uh, in the House, that's actually uh, potentially a good outcome from the Mueller hearings. Um, and we see this sort of after the Mueller hearings, um, but before the Ukraine stuff starts coming out you see um, sort of high-profile uh, Democrats in the House lining up behind impeachment in ways that they hadn't before. So you have these sort of hearings that sway, the, the, that sort of further push the Democratic public towards uh, impeaching the president, which then has a sort of rebound effect and further convinces Democratic leadership in Congress to support impeachment. Right? That's a sort of important form of political organizing, even though it doesn't actually involve sort of reaching across the aisle in any way. I just want to dwell on this for a little bit, because I do think that, you know, it's hard to let go of the idea that what oversight should be really be about is finding facts. And if there's a problem, trying to correct it, if someone has engaged in something um, like impeachable conduct, that should be called out for reasons of sort of reinforcing sort of Amer what I think of as American traditional sort of moral norms about our democracy. I do think the media environment plays a role. Um, so I just want to, to, you know, in your example, in the, in the McCarthy, Army McCarthy hearings, you talk about how Edward R. Murrow devoted 30 minutes of his show uh, on CBS to condemning McCarthy and his tactics. And that was sort of repeated over a number of different media outlets. There were obviously fewer media outlets then. Um, and that was sort of a moment that the American public generally kind of said, gee, what McCarthy's doing here doesn't really seem to be consistent with my what I think of as my American values. And it, had, it was instrumental in I think, changing the, the view of what McCarthy was doing there. I think I, my sense at the current moment is we don't have something like that. We don't have a unifying media voice like Edward R. Murrow to sort of put it together and speak to you know the, a broad swath of Americans and traditional American values. Um, I mean, I, I don't think you're saying that it's it's sort of unimportant what the aim of the oversight is, but. Are we ever going to have something like that in our current media environment, which is so disparate, so many outlets, so many media outlets competing for basically attention of, of Americans and what they think of as their values? Right. Well, so I, one, one thing I would note is, um, you know, it's so the, so the Murrow attack on, on McCarthy doesn't come until 1954, you know, March 1954. And so, um, you know, it takes a long time. You know, we have this idea that sort of the establishment, you know, the, the sort of cross-partisan establishment turned on McCarthy from, you know, from early on. And that's just not true. Eisenhower, uh, hate, you know, sort of, it was known in political circles that Eisenhower hated McCarthy, but he basically refused to, to sort of mention McCarthy by name. And when he finally does criticize him, it's very tepid. A lot of other Republicans uh, refuse to criticize McCarthy. It's really just... Um, 
Ralph Flanders of Vermont uh, and uh, Margaret Chase Smith, um, who are the sort of two Republicans in the Senate who really go after uh, McCarthy. Um, and, you know, Flanders, I mean, it sort of sounds like Jeff Flake, like Flanders doesn't go after uh, McCarthy until after he's already announced that he's not running again in the next election. Uh, and Flanders isn't running again. So the, the you know, I think in retrospect, we, we may tend to overstate the extent to which uh, his fellow Republicans turned on uh, McCarthy, especially before the Army McCarthy hearings. And in terms of media environment, you know, I think, again, for a long time, the, the, the criticism is fairly tepid. You know, for a long time, the major national outlets, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, 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 the networks, repeat McCarthy's charges sort of prominently above the fold, you know, you know every day, every week. Uh, you see a lot, you know, you could make a lot of the same criticisms that people make of the press now that they repeat what he says. And it's only, you know, several paragraphs later that they that they get into whether there's any actual evidence for them or things like that. But you are right that the media environment is less fractured in the middle of the 20th century. And in, in that sense, the, the sort of aberrational period is actually not today, it's the mid 20th century. You know, for, for before that, you had a highly partisan media environment, really from, you know, from the 18th century all the way through the 19th century and into the early 20th century. Um, and, you know, we're, we're in sort of a, uh, in some ways, a, 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 an environment now that looks more like the norm in American history, where you have a somewhat more partisan media environment. So I think it would be hard for someone to play the role of sort of the, the at least the role that we attribute to Murrow uh, in that context. I think that's probably right. And so just as we reflect on the last two years, I guess it would be since the Democrats came into power in the House, uh, obviously there were the Mueller hearings, there was the impeachment inquiry. I mean, would you say that it's sort of too too soon or too early to know really what impact those sets of hearings have had or are having on on our sort of constitutional democratic culture. I think you know. I think everything is going to depend on what happens in in the election this year. In the sense that you know, we tend to read elections as public judgments on what has gone before. I think that you know, and, and this, by the way, is you know, when I talk about the sort of importance of com- public communication. Not the only reason, but one reason is that, you know, all of these politicians are aimed at election and at re-election. And so part of what they're trying to do is make the case that, hey, you should trust uh, me and my team over them and their team. And so a lot of, you know, when we look back 10 years from now, a lot of the way we talk about the 2020 election is going to be, um, did the American people uh, choose to repudiate Trump, uh, or did they choose to reward him with a second term? And if they chose to reward him with a second term, that's going to be seen as a repudiation of Democratic attempts to check him. So we're going to have to wait and see both what happens in the 2020 election and then how sort of as a political community, we decide to read what happens in the 2020 election, right? Um, we sort of construct these post hoc narratives about elections. And that's really... Uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, when we talk about this time period, um, what story we choose to tell uh, about it is going to depend on sort of how we understand the 2020 election. As part of that, obviously, Congress is, I mean, Congress is, 
in meeting and in session, uh, the House, as you know, recently voted to do a form of proxy voting so that not all of the the members of the House need to be in the chamber uh, at the same time. And they're doing that because of the the chance of transmission, obviously, of the coronavirus. Another part of what the House did is that they made it possible for committee proceedings to be conducted remotely, basically. Um, And the Senate has done a little bit of that as well. What's your, I mean, what do you think the idea of remote hearings, what what does it do to this idea of overspeech? I was having trouble imagining a senator or Congress sort of in his home office back in the district, sort of ranting and raving into his computer the, or her computer the same way uh, he or she might might be perceived to sort of rant and rave in the the immediacy and the the you know the presence of being in in the hearing room. So, what do you think of the idea of remote hearings? What does it do to to the idea of congressional overspeech in your view? I think it's a great question. So, I think it's you know. We talked to, uh, we've talked a couple times about the importance of media and, um, in some sense, the idea of media specificity, right? That, that sort of effective overspeech looks different in the 1930s in the munitions hearings where we're talking about, you know, mostly print media and a little bit of radio uh, than it does in the 50s with McCarthy and Army McCarthy where we're talking about television. Um, and it looks very different today when we're talking about, um, you know, Twitter and, and um, uh, short video clips on the Internet. So if remote hearings become a sort of more common feature of our landscape, if, for example, they um, continue even after the pandemic has passed, then I think uh, members and committees are going to need to think about sort of how to stage them effectively. Um, And that's going to mean things, you know, it sounds silly, but that's going to mean thinking about things like, well, what do you have in the background when you're speaking, right? It's not a coincidence that congressional committee rooms are designed to look sort of imposing and formal, right? And you lose some of that if you have a really informal or silly looking background behind you. Um, It's going to mean thinking about, well, okay, if we're doing this on computers anyway, are there things we can integrate into it, right? Can we, do we want members of Congress in at least some context to be sort of uh, able to put up sort of PowerPoint presentations um, sort of while they're speaking or things like that. And, you, you know, that happens a little like bit. Sc- in committee screen rooms, share but. bombing. Type exactly. Um, you know, how do we, how do we want to handle uh, sort of uh, interruptions, right? Does, does the, does the chair, uh, you know, get to mute members, right? All kinds of issues are going to arise that are going to go to the question of, okay, what makes for, uh, effective congressional communication in the context of uh, remote meetings, in the context of a situation where you're not all in the same room. And that's going to look different than it's looked in the past, but it always looks different depending on what the media of communications are. So I think there's a there's going to have to be, you know, again, if this becomes regularized, there's going to have to be some rethinking of how it's done. But in some sense, that's both a point of departure from uh, from the past and a point of continuity, because they're always sort of rethinking what it means to effectively use these kinds of proceedings to communicate. All right. Last question. Uh, your name is Josh Chaffetz. Uh, you write about congressional oversight um, and other congressional issues. How often do you get mistaken on Twitter or elsewhere for being Jason Chaffetz, also a famous name. He's a Republican congressman from Utah who chaired the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform from 2015 until 2017. He is someone everyone will remember <laughs> from that time period in the run-up to the election. So yeah, you, Josh Chaffetz versus Jason Chaffetz. 
the time. I can tell when he's in it's less so now that he's that he's out of the house, but um I can always tell when he said something controversial, both when he was a member and and now on Fox News, uh, because my Twitter mentions just light up. Um so uh yeah, all the time. Are you so are you glad? Is it, is it like help raise your profile on these issues? Uh you know, it's us- it's not usually people who want to compliment him who wind up coming into my my uh Twitter mentions. <laughs> so I think I could do without that. But uh Well, if I ever have it. if I ever have Matt Gertz on the uh on the podcast, <laughs> I will ask him the same question with respect to Matt Gates, uh yes, he, he, he always and a, yeah. he and I have a support organization. <laughs> Josh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I um, really thank appreciate you so much it. For having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Don't forget to share the Lawfare Podcast on social media and give us a five star rating and review wherever you found us. You can also purchase Lawfare merchandise at our online store, www.thelawfarestore.com. We would also appreciate your support for our nonprofit endeavors at lawfareblog.com slash support dash lawfare. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo Studios was our audio engineer. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.